Welcome to Trinity Radio. I'm so glad you're here. I'm Braxton Hunter, and today we're going to be taking a look at a video by Genetically Modified Skeptic and Paul Ogia as they team up to talk about why this criticism comes from Christians that atheists are just lying and they really know the truth, but they're atheists because they want to go out and sin. This is going to be a fun video, I think, an interesting one, and partly because I do actually really like both of these guys as, as persons. Um, I say that a lot about the people that I'm critiquing, not everyone, but um, with both of these guys, I've had conversations. Uh, I've had a private and public conversations with Paul Ogia, and somewhere on Twitter, Paul Ogia actually said that this theist was smart. I can't find it, but I swear that it's there. You'll have to take my word for it. And a genetically modified skeptic said, I'm glad to see that young Christians have the compassionate influence you, that's me, provide in this video. Well done, man. Hey, I like it when people say good things about me that stroke my ego, and I tend to like those people as a result. So there's nothing personal about this. I really do think these are both, um, you know, great guys. Uh, in general, but this video, obviously I, I have problems with their atheism and in this video specifically, I think there's some things that we need to iron out. And it is true, they are right, that there are Christians who say that if you're an atheist, you really do know the truth, but you just want to go out and sin. So let's listen to Drew as he opens this up and let's begin talking a little bit about this together. When I left Christianity, there were plenty of arguments and accusations I expected to encounter from Christians. You believe everything came from nothing, you have blind faith in science, you misunderstood this passage in the Bible, etc. One popular accusation really caught me by surprise, though. Drew, you're lying. You didn't leave the faith because you were no longer convinced of it. There's one reason why anyone rejects the gospel. You know it's all true, but you want to sin. Okay. I can take issue with whatever Christians have told you that because I don't think there's only ever just one reason why anyone makes a major decision. Human beings are complex creatures. We may not always realize it about ourselves, but there are almost always multiple reasons why we choose any big thing in our lives. Um, what if you become a Christian or an atheist or a Muslim or whatever else, when you have a major worldview shift, there are almost always intellectual, emotional, and spiritual reasons why that happens. And if a desire for sin is the reason some people become atheists, it may not really always be that obvious to them. Psychology is complicated, and I'm not the first to point out that there are psychologists and therapists who have jobs today, partly because we aren't even always 100% clear on why we make the decisions or the moves or form the beliefs that we do form. So um, that's the first thing that I want to point out. The second thing is, and I hope I characterize this right, primarily what Drew wants to argue in this video, and with Paul Ogia's help, is that uh, he thinks he may have found the source of why it is that uh, so many Christians take this approach or have this, this belief that atheists are lying because they just want to go out and sin. And he thinks he finds it all the way back beginning in the second century. And as we look at some early Christians and some early stuff we have right up through Eusebius, that seems, he thinks, seems to lay the groundwork for the idea that, that this criticism holds partly because of how the early church understood orthodoxy to be to be an orthodox Christian and what Christian heresy was. Now, first of all, I want to make this clear. Um, 
when we talk about heresy in theological circles today, I'm not, I'm not going to deny the fact that an atheist would qualify as a heretic. That's not inappropriate. Uh, but morphologically, when we talk about heresy in academic theological circles today, most of the time we're talking about Christian heresies. Um, Christians, uh, people who hold to some, some combination of Christian doctrine, uh, but it's either marred or distorted in some way such that it doesn't reflect Orthodox Christianity. We're not usually talking about naturalists or atheists. That's usually not what's in view. And I'm not sure that looking at how the early church viewed uh, issues related to unorthodox, quote-unquote, Christians um, really helps out with this discussion with atheists. But but even if you wanted to go there, and by the way, I do appreciate the level of research that went into this. Drew apparently did a lot of work. He, he put a lot of quotes together, um, and, and so high five there. Paul, likewise, found a lot of interesting video clips, and they were both very open about uh, their own experiences, and so all of that's great. But I think there's a much more obvious explanation for why a Christian might say that atheists are lying and they're just in it for sin. And I think there's two explanations that are much more obvious. Um, and the reason I think these two explanations I'm going to offer are much more obvious is because, first of all, there aren't many Christians today reading the early church. They're not reading the church fathers. I wish they would. It's fascinating. They're not reading Eusebius. And if you wanted to say, yeah, but... What the, the groundwork that was laid there by these early Christians is in the DNA of the church even today. But as atheists so often point out, Christianity today, between Protestants and the various denominations and Catholicism and Eastern Orthodox and everything else, is so disparate in, in these secondary issues and things like that, um, that, that to say that what the early church fathers believed about particular things is why modern Christians— particularly the types of modern Protestant Christians that I think these guys come from, treat atheists in a certain respect, I think is a little bit of a stretch. Um, I could be wrong, but I, I think there's two more obvious explanations for this. One is all Christians around the world today, um, at least the major branches of Christianity that we would call Orthodox Christians, uh, the kinds of churches that I think these guys came from, are Christians who affirm the truth of the Bible, that the Bible is authoritative. And there is a very clear Bible passage that seems to teach exactly what this criticism, where this, I mean, the thing that this criticism is based upon. Uh, when, when, when I saw what this video was about, that passage sprung immediately to my mind, and we're going to talk about it in just a little bit. So there's that. There's a biblical, there's biblical data that seems to suggest this that would be more obvious to the minds of church people today than something from Eusebius. Um, second, uh, the observation of those who walk away promoting or engaging in what Christians consider sinful activity. So it, it may not be, in, and it certainly may not be obvious to you, that it was some particular sin that you wanted to go engage in, that you didn't like the idea of God looking over your shoulder or whatever. That, that may be true, and you're not, you may not be lying about that um, and lying about what you think is true about the nature of reality. But when church people see people walk away from church, walk away from the faith, invariably those people that walk away, once they become atheists, their political views change and their views on sin change, um, such that they might not have a problem changing their views on human sexuality and then promoting and supporting and voting along those lines. 
there may have been simple social practices that previously they had been taught were sinful, and now they're engaging in those things. When you have a culture of atheism online today where it has been said by many that, say, sex workers um, are doing a perfectly moral, they're involved in a perfectly moral uh, sort of a occupation. Uh, whether or not that's true, that's that should be the subject of another video, but whether or not that's true, the reality is when church people hear you saying that, it's not a leap in logic for them to say, it looks like that guy left Christianity so that he could support or engage in sin. So I think that the biblical data uh, that seems much more spot on with this criticism and the uh, observation that church people have of others who walk away uh, supporting or engaging in what they consider to be sinful activities are much more obvious explanations for why someone might say, you're lying, you just want to go out and sin. I don't think we have to go to Eusebius for that. I don't think we have to go to um, early church uh, stuff about that. But um, that's gonna kinda, that kind of sets the stage for this thing. But let's go ahead now and move on to the next thing uh, that Drew has to say. And let's hear, how, he hears this so often, and why? Why do so many Christians, from some of my own Christian commenters all the way to many well-known Christian apologists, espouse the view that those who say they disagree with them do so dishonestly for the sake of selfish personal gain? Yeah, so this is a question, but basically what we're talking about here is attributing wrong motives to you for your beliefs or for why you hold to particular beliefs. That's, if we kind of zoom out and look at it bigger picture, that's really what we're talking about here, attributing um, or impugning your motives. But of course, this is not something that just happens to atheists. This happens to Christians as well by atheists and unbelievers of various sorts. Uh, for instance, here is a tweet. I have uh, marked out the uh, name of the person, but um, here's a tweet. The only reasonable, uh, the only reason to be unconvinced at this point is because you, talking about me, have a commitment to some ideological constraint on your ability to take in information, like you and your nonsense ways of viewing the ancient world. So this individual is impugning my motives. You're, you're, you just won't allow yourself to go there because of your ideological commitments. So this is an attribution of motivations to my part by an unbeliever, um, rather than listening to what I'm actually saying about why I don't take a particular position. So I think this happens both ways. It also seems much more obvious that this isn't something that springs from Christianity. This is just something that people do. Particularly, this is something people do when you're on the opposite side of a worldview divide from where they are. And since these worldview issues are held so close to our chest and they are such a part of our identity, um, that when someone has another worldview from you, it sometimes becomes difficult to see how they could hold such a position. And that's something that we can be guilty of on both sides of this thing. So I think that's much more likely. And at this point, uh, let's move on to a final word from Drew before we move on to Paul. Okay, so this one view represents a big topic with quite a wild history, so I'm going to have to take you guys on a bit of a journey into the past for this one. I'll be diving into where this attitude likely came from historically. Yeah, but the problem is, you'll remember, the two points that I think are much more obvious explanations for this are the biblical data that we'll get into and the observation of unbelievers who walk away. The biblical data is a historical explanation 
that I think is much more obvious than the journey. And he's right to say a journey that we embark on or however you put it into church history and, and all these writings that, that most Christians have never read before. But, um, but, but we'll get there. So let's move on to hear what Paul has to say. Having been a Christian, I knew the reaction of current Christians would be to accuse me of never having been a Christian at all. What I wasn't prepared for was the constant call to defend the Christian doctrine that I held back when I held Christian doctrine. They want me to explain my orthodoxy, orthodoxy in the modern sense, so that they can identify my heresy, heresy in the modern sense, and so discover exactly what belief I held that was keeping me from Jesus all along. Okay, yeah. Now, this, I don't know that there's actually anything wrong with that suggestion. So when you're talking with someone who has a different position than you do, and you're trying to figure out where you both stand so that you don't talk past each other. Well, in such a case, what you want to do is say, okay, can you explain back to me what you understand my position to be so that we're not talking past each other? When I'm doing one-on-one evangelism, like talking with someone one-on-one, so I'm not on a stage somewhere, um, it's just me and them talking. What I do is the first thing I do is I say, first of all, I want to understand where you come from. And I don't just say, are you an atheist, agnostic, Muslim? And if they tell me something like that, I'm not okay with that because there are all kinds of atheists, all kinds of agnostics, all kinds of Muslims. And so what I ask them is, uh, can you answer for me how you, can you tell me how you answer the major questions of life? And at least these three, how did we get here? What's the meaning of life if there is one, the purpose if there is one, and what happens when we die? Now, people can answer that in various ways. One way that atheists could answer, how did we get here, is they might say, well, um, the universe began, and it's, we don't know what comes before the Big Bang, but it seems like there was a Big Bang, and then matter coalesced into stars, and ultimately we got planets, and ultimately abiogenesis took hold, and then evolution, and here we are, and that's how we got here. Uh, what's the purpose of life? Might go with an existential sort of Sardian explanation, explanation that there's not really some intrinsic purpose to life, but we can decide on our own purpose, that sort of thing. And then what happens when we die? Well, we, we, we die, and and, um, and, and our bodies decompose and there is no afterlife and that's it. Um, that's how an atheist might explain that. So I'm not trying to ask them a question they don't know the answer to. I want to understand their position. And I don't even respond at this point. I, I want more information. I may ask clarifying questions to make sure I understand them. That way now I have a pretty good handle on the basics of their worldview. Now obviously that doesn't give me everything, but it gives me a place to start. But then the second thing I do, and this is what's important to this comment right here, is I ask them, what do you understand the Christian message to be? Just like in a paragraph, what do you understand the Christian message to be? Because I want to make sure that the Christianity that they're rejecting isn't one that I also reject. I want to make sure that they understand exactly where I'm coming from so that if they espouse a view that some Christians hold but that I don't hold, we make sure that we understand each other rightly so that we can have a more meaningful conversation instead of talking past each other as we would if we didn't understand each other's worldviews. That's important. So I really don't know what's wrong with saying to someone like Paul, if you're, if you're in Paul's church and Paul becomes an atheist and you say to Paul, hey, look, man, what, can, can you tell me how you think Christians answer this question or the objection that you just raised to Christianity? How do you think that the best Christian responses would go with something like that? I don't think that's wrong at all. In fact, Paul says here, quote, they want me to explain my orthodoxy, orthodoxy in the modern sense, so that they can identify my heresy heresy in the modern sense, and so discover what belief I held that was keeping me from Jesus all along. 
right. I don't know that there's any problem there. In fact, I've received questions like this. At one point uh, last year, we were talking about um, evolution, something that I think has no bearing on whether Christianity is true. Um, and people are irritated by that, but that's just the way it is. And a particular person said to me, do you hold that we're related to bananas? It's more of a test question around what exactly your objections are to evolution and what you lack a holding to. I don't believe there's been a clear statement to what your objection is, so that would inform how extreme your position or your opposition is. So this particular individual was asking me something similar to what Paul was asked. Let's read it again. Paul says, they want me to explain my orthodoxy, orthodoxy in the modern sense, so they can identify my heresy, heresy in the modern sense. And so discover what belief I held that was keeping me from Jesus all along. Now, with the tweet that I just showed you in question, a, a Christian could say they want me to explain evolution, evolution in the modern sense, so that they can identify where I'm out of step with science, science in the modern sense. And so discover what belief I held that was keeping me from affirming evolution all along. See, this goes both ways. And in this case, what Paul objects to, I don't think is a problem at all. I think that's a good way to have conversation to make sure that we're not talking past each other. So let's move on now and let's see um, exactly what passage of scripture this is that I think is much more obviously the source of this sort of a criticism than the church history material that Drew has um, taken the time to put together. So let's go back to Paulogia and then click over to Drew. As an apostate, I'm obviously a heretic in the modern sense. But did you know that according to today's Orthodox in the ancient sense are also modern versions of heretics in the ancient sense? He, in Romans 1, makes it clear over and over and over again, every single person knows God exists. Confused? Well, for this one, we're going to need a bit of a history lesson from Drew. And it's a strange one. But I'll be back to show you how what we have learned applies to our lives today. As mentioned earlier, I came across something big that informed my understanding of why so many Christians hold to this attitude. That thing was the classical view of orthodoxy and heresy as propagated by a specific group of Christians from the second century onward. Wait, hold up, Drew. Wait a minute, man. Uh, I see we're going to go off on the church history stuff here, and, and I'm going to go with you on that journey, and we're going to talk about it. But what I see here in this passage, uh, or in this uh, section, is that Paul actually just played a clip of someone pointing to the much more obvious Bible passage that we're talking about here. Uh, this, this is the thing that, that, that's causing me a little bit of confusion when we, when we uh, discuss this. So you heard the passage that was mentioned there, right? Romans 1. Romans 1 was mentioned. Um, and this is the actual reason why I think many Christians hold this view. What blows my mind is that we're about to embark on an exploration of early church history as it relates to orthodoxy and heresy and understandings uh, within Christianity about those things in order to solve the Rubik's Cube style mystery of why Christians would give the criticism that they give. When the answer simply is not that complicated and comes from the first chapter of Paul's most theologically robust letter in the New Testament. And that is Romans chapter one, as this guy says. And I found it a little bit odd um, that that this that Paul has this clip of this guy saying Romans one, Romans one, 
And then that never really gets treated in, in this uh, video. But Romans chapter 1 and verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Paul actually even utters that phrase, suppressing the truth, later on in this video, if I'm not mistaken. It says in verse 19, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. And then the passage goes on in verse 20 to, to explain uh, what we would call general revelation, that you can look at the world around you and you don't have an excuse for not believing in God if you look at the, the world around you. Now, this passage is specifically talking about idolaters, not atheists. But I think that it works the same for atheists. If idolaters could look around them and see that there's a God who made everything, then Paul, what Paul says here about uh, about would, would apply to atheists looking around and seeing that there's a God who made everything. Now, don't misunderstand. It, I'm not focused right now on whether you believe that's true or not. That's, that's not the point. The point is that this is a much more obvious source for where Christians get this sort of thing. I actually wrote an, an article, uh, a chapter in a book on this, uh, and I'm, I'm just going to read a little paragraph of it to you here that I, that I think kind of unpacks how I think we can best understand this passage. So this person that we're talking about is a person who is suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. It's the kind of person who, because of their unrighteousness or, and don't miss this, as an act of unrighteousness, suppresses the truth. It certainly appears that the answer to the question of whether any genuine atheist exists, as opposed to someone lying and saying that they're an atheist, would receive a negative answer. If this were true, it would mean that all skeptics who claim to be atheists or agnostics were being disingenuous. Now, you see why this passage is much more obvious. It says that they're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. I mean, this seems strongly to give the impression that these people, it says that God revealed himself within them and that they can look at the creation around them and know that there's a God. This is where people get this idea that, we're that you're just lying and you just want to be unrighteous or, or sin. However, Let's go a bit deeper. The Greek word translated suppress here is transliterated as katecho and means to hold back, retain, or detain. Its use here describes willful disbelief. One might be tempted to offer the possibility that such people believe or know the truth themselves, but are holding back others from accepting the truth. This, however, will not go through. What immediately follows, quote, because that which is evident within them, for God made it evident to them, demonstrates the, the, to the reader that the same individuals who are suppressing the truth are the ones who are also the subjects of the suppression. It appears, therefore, that this is a self-deception. Paul explains that God has ensured their knowledge of the truth. How they receive this knowledge is the subject of subsequent verses, yet the text does seem to indicate, unless my reading is too wooden, some internal knowledge of the truth. Perhaps this is an innate knowledge of God like Calvin's sensus divinitatis or some other properly basic awareness of God's existence. So the, the, the way I think that we best understand this is to say, yes, as Christians, and I know that you don't buy this, I know you don't like this, and I can see how this would come, become offensive. Um, but we would say that at some point the truth was revealed, but, um, either because of right unrighteousness or in an act of unrighteousness, that truth was suppressed. Now here's the thing, and this is going to become relevant too. When we look at the church history material in just a few moments, um, that suppression of truth. Remember how he said people are complicated. It's not that you said, oh, I don't want to believe this anymore necessarily. And so I'm going to suppress the truth because I want to go out and sin. 
For some people, I actually do think that's a motivation. Believe it or not, there are many people and, and you would just have to call all of them liars, which would be an awkward thing to do in a video like this where you're saying you shouldn't impugn people's motives when they're telling you what their motives are. Uh, but, but there are a lot of people who have become Christians who were atheists and will say that the reason they became atheists was because there was a particular sinful activity they wanted to get involved in or they didn't want God looking over their shoulder or something like that. So I do think that happens sometimes. But it may well be that part of the suppression happens, that, that you accept it, you accept, you, you accept this willful, you kind of fall into a willful disbelief because the culture around you is so naturalistically oriented. I mean, that is certainly true in our educational system, in, uh, in our government regulations related to uh, the separation of church and state and all those kind of things. Also, um, when, when we're talking about uh, the entertainment world, it's certainly there. So in many ways, the crafters of our culture, despite what the number of the people in middle America think, the people who are crafting our culture very much uh, present a naturalistic science-driven picture, empiricism-driven picture. And so that can be very seductive and it can, it, you can suppress the truth without even necessarily recognizing that it's starting to happen and you just kind of go with it. But here's the thing, however that happens, the suppression of the truth, the willful disbelief um, is disbelief nonetheless. That's why many of us apologists don't say about atheists that you're lying. I believe that you don't believe. The question is, how did you get to that point? And so I think there was probably a moment in the past when you did have the truth. And even if you don't buy that, Drew and Paul and perhaps whoever else, you could at the very least say there was a time in my life where I was absolutely sure that I was encountering God, experiencing God, knew the truth about God, and now I don't. So that may be a naturalistic explanation, but this is why this passage speaks the way it does. It is uh, to the Christian a suppression of truth. But that suppression can be aided by the culture. As we're going to see in a little while, the early church suggested that it could be aided by the demonic. And so this is not as clean cut as you're lying because you want to go out and sin. And so I would actually reject that position when Christians raise it. I, I don't think that they should go about it that way. And it's very simple to point out that a willful disbelief is disbelief all the same. And when we say willful disbelief, we don't necessarily mean that it was entirely obvious to you at every stage exactly why you were adopting the views that you were. So there's a lot that needs to go into that, and I think it's very important. But next, Drew, next Drew, so anyway, the bottom line is that passage, that passage, let me just read it again and ask yourself, is this not likely where this probably came from, this criticism from Christians? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them. They know this, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Now, you have to you have to unpack that and recognize some things that become obvious when you read it. Like I just said, because for whatever reasons, the truth was suppressed. It doesn't mean that someone is lying. They are they are disbelieving now. And so it's not disingenuous. That's just obvious from the passage once you really think about it. But on a cursory reading of it. It's not surprising that some Christians would come away with the conclusion, oh, no, they're just lying then. It is clear, after all. They're just lying. They just want to go out and sin. I mean, the Bible says right there, unrighteousness. 
So that is a much more obvious source for all this stuff. All right, let's move on and let's take a look at um, what Drew has to say. And the first thing that Drew rolls out is the etymology of the terms orthodox and heresy. So let's take a look at that now. Based on those definitions alone, however, I don't think that we can definitively say whether or not the proto-orthodox did see so-called heretics as dishonest, willfully wrong, morally weak people. Yeah, so the, we don't actually have to go over the material where he lays out this case that heresy has to do with making a choice and uh, and orthodox has to do with the right opinion. So that if you're, he tries to make this, he, he tries to make this case that um, by looking at the etymology of the terms orthodox and heresy, uh, you can show that in, implicit in the terms themselves is the idea that heretics know what's right and they willfully choose to reject it. But we don't actually need to spend time on this because Drew himself, as we just saw, says that we can't definitively draw those conclusions. So he brought it up, I guess, because he thought it was an interesting possibility, but he ultimately doesn't think that that solves it. So he moves on to something a little bit more solid in his mind. And that takes us to um, uh, Acts chapter 20. So here he's it. We'll start in the New Testament book of Acts chapter 20, the Apostle Paul's final lesson to the elders of the church at Ephesus before he leaves them to maintain their church on their own. We'll read verses 28 to 31. Keep watch over yourself and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. So the question here is whether or not Paul, a genuine apostle according to the Proto-Orthodox, actually saw so-called heretics as dishonest, willfully wrong, morally weak people. How does he describe them here then? as ravenous wolves who will arise to distort the truth in order to draw disciples into following them instead of the church. Paul has apparently even warned them of this night and day with tears. It sounds like Paul may have taken the view that Christians of any other persuasion than his own were willfully wrong, knowing the truth but distorting it for their own selfish gain. Okay, so... This is what he just said. It sounds like Paul may have taken the view that Christians of any other persuasion than his were willfully wrong, knowing the truth, but distorting it for their own selfish gain. Maybe that's what Paul thinks. And again, I'm not saying you couldn't find some statement like that uh, in the early church. But here with, but here with Paul, what he actually says is, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away, and here's their motivation, to draw away the disciples after them. Now, it actually may well be that Drew is right here. He just can't conclude that he's right from this passage. Why? Well, there's actually a simple defeater for this. In both the churches that I pastored, an individual rose up from among our own, uh, speaking things that were out of step with what our church doctrinally affirmed and attempted to draw church members away. Do I think that they knew the truth and were intentionally lying uh, for selfish gain? Nope. I think they really believed and thought they were doing the right thing. And so long as what I'm describing is even possible, 
this part of Drew's case fails because I, I believe that there are Muslims who come to me and, and genuinely believe what they're saying and think they're doing the right thing by telling me this, uh, but they're, they're actually teaching a twisting of Scripture. Uh, and, and I think that that can happen with multiple religions. So uh, I, just don't, I just think this fails. It may be the case that this is what Paul had in mind, but I don't think you can conclude that on the basis of this. So uh, then there's, he moves on to another passage. Let's take a look at this one. In a chapter titled Simon Magus, Eusebius recorded the proto-Orthodox view of the very beginnings of heresy, referencing the work of his fellow heresiologists throughout. But faith in our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, having now been diffused among all men, the enemy of man's salvation contrived a plan for seizing the imperial city for himself. He conducted thither the above-mentioned Simon, aided him in his deceitful arts, led many of the inhabitants of Rome astray, and thus brought them into his own power. This is stated by Justin. And after the ascension of the Lord into heaven, the demons put forward certain men who said they were gods, and who were not only allowed by you to go unpersecuted, but were even deemed worthy of honors. One of them was Simon, a Samaritan of the village of Gito, who in the reign of Claudius Caesar performed in your imperial city some mighty acts of magic by the art of demons operating in him, and was considered a god, and as a god was honored by you with a statue which was erected in the river Tiber between the two bridges and bore the inscription in the Latin tongue Simone Deo Sancto, that is, to Simon, the holy god. Justin relates these things, and Irenaeus also agrees with him in the first book of his work Against Heresies, where he gives an account of the man and of his profane and impure teaching. We have understood that Simon was the author of all heresy. From his time down to the present, those who have followed his heresy have feigned the sober philosophy of the Christians, which is celebrated among all on account of its purity of life. Eusebius doesn't stop his description of these so-called heretics here, though. He goes on about their moral character, and his opinion on them becomes quite clear. But those matters which they keep more secret than these, in regard to which they say that one upon first hearing them would be astonished, and to use one of the written phrases in vogue among them, would be confounded, are in truth full of amazing things, and of madness and folly, being of such a sort that it is impossible not only to commit them to writing, but also for modest men even to utter them with the lips on account of their excessive baseness and lewdness. For whatever could be conceived of, viler than the vilest thing, all that has been outdone by this most abominable sect, which is composed of those who make a sport of those miserable females that are literally overwhelmed with all kinds of vices. The narrative set up regarding heresy here seems to take the attitude of Paul in Acts chapter 20 and intensify it. This so-called heretic, Simon Magus, isn't just viewed as a ravenous wolf who distorts the truth, but as a literal demon-infested madman with deplorable moral failings and a god complex. And apparently, all heresy stands on the foundations he laid. This makes all other so-called heretics similarly corrupt in the eyes of the proto-Orthodox to Simon himself. Okay, so what this one actually does show from the early church is it shows an example um, of where persons who do know the truth and are lying about it um, are doing so for sinful reasons. The problem is that those persons are demons. <laughs> That's the point. And you remember how I said a moment ago that uh, there are that we are complex creatures and we make decisions for a variety of reasons. 
And whether you believe in the demonic or not, one of those reasons is, is societal stuff, cultural stuff, like I said. Uh, another one of those influences could be the demonic. And whether you think that's real or not, the early church thought it was real. And so this is a contributing factor. So I think it undermines the case that Drew's trying, trying to make. Um, so let, let's move on to this next thing, because he wants to make an interesting point about how this Simon, there was a statue that was supposedly erected, uh, but that there was perhaps an indication that, that the early church was wrong about this. Wait, you might say, if Simon Magus was really treated as a god and he wasn't one, isn't their attitude somewhat justified? Well, about that. Remember how Justin Martyr said that Simon was worshipped so fervently that a statue was erected on Tiber Island in his honor with the inscription Simone Deo Sancto, that is, to Simon the Holy God? Well, that statue was found in 1574. The inscription actually read Simone Sancto Sancto Deo. This Sanco changes the identification of this altar from potentially being for Simon Magus to definitely being for the pagan god of trust called Semosancus, who had been worshipped in Rome for centuries. So the proto-Orthodox weren't entirely accurate in their portrayal of Simon Magus. But the relevant point here, Drew, isn't whether Simon actually was revered that way, but whether the certain early church figures thought this to be the case. Even if you think they knew the truth and were lying, which again would be an awkward notion in a video discussing the mistake of claiming people know the truth and are lying, they are still making a claim on the basis of the idea that he was revered as stated. So anyway, I think that's all interesting stuff, but I, I don't think it makes the point. At least it doesn't clearly make the point. Um, again, I want to make it clear. It's not that you couldn't find early church statements that say exactly what Drew um, thinks is being said here. Uh, the point is, I don't think these examples give you that. And I think that there's more obvious reasons that Christians make the criticism that they do, aside from the, the you know, things about Simon and the statue and Eusebius and all these kind of things. Um, Drew next quotes from Eusebius to drive the point home, but Eusebius again references that these individuals were under demonic influence, which I really do think undercuts what he's trying to say here. So let's move on now, and let's see what Paul has to say as we go back to Paulogia. And we are now in the era of online mega ministries that are attempting to span the globe and therefore reliant on crossing denominational lines in order to meet numbers and budgets. They can't afford to alienate swaths of believers, and so the heresy rhetoric is toned down. Hold up. I think Paul just suggested that online ministries are striving for unity and calling out div divisive heresy hunters because they want more followers and money rather than their stated reason because they've honestly become convinced that such divisions over secondary issues is wrong. In other words, he's questioning, he thinks they're lying, and he's questioning their motives. At least that's how it certainly sounds. I, I don't want to put words in his mouth. In fact, let's just play it again so we get it from him. And we are now in the era of online mega ministries that are attempting to span the globe and therefore reliant on crossing denominational lines in order to meet numbers and budgets. They can't afford to alienate swaths of believers. And so the heresy rhetoric is toned down. Now, again, I, I like both of these guys. They're cool guys. So I, I just want to say this 
gently, but I think this is a powerful point in a video on a subject like this. If you think it's uncool when Christians impugn your motives, why not try avoiding impugning the motives of Christians? In fact, this is such a striking statement from Paul, given the subject of this video, that I would consider it deeply. I think that's very, very important here. And after all, Paul himself says that it doesn't matter where this comes from, where that kind of thing comes from. It, it obfuscates a real discussion or, or getting to the truth. I'll just let him say it. But regardless of who's doing it, these tactics serve only to obfuscate. Yeah. And then finally, uh, let's hear one more thing about attributing motives. But this doesn't mean that today's Christian spokespeople have given up the time-honored tradition of avoiding argumentation by instead attributing motive. That's right. Uh, you could say that, but then, of course, I don't know why you have William Lane Craig up there. Maybe we could hear some other time why that is. But, of course, as I threw out at the top of the show, I receive stuff like this. The only reason to be unconvinced at this point is because you have a commitment to some ideological constraint on your ability to take in information like you and your nonsense ways of viewing the ancient world. So I think this happens on both sides, but among Christians, when it happens, I think there is a much more obvious source for this than something to do with church history. Um, I think the more obvious source is Romans chapter one, verse 18 and following. Um, and I think the observation of those who walk away promoting or engaging in what Christians consider sinful activity, even though I realize those walking away don't consider it sinful or, to use naturalistic language, immoral uh, activity anyway. I think that all of this uh, is important, but I would also just urge people on both sides to have real conversations. I, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with trying to get clarity on what why a particular person rejected orthodox positions. I, I'm not sure I understood that part of it from Paulogia. Um, I, I think that perhaps Drew can notice that this happens on both sides and it may just be a part of human nature. That doesn't make it okay. Uh, I'm not, this is not a two quo qui fallacy. It doesn't make it okay. Um, what needs to happen is we have a better understanding of what scripture is actually saying when you read it slowly, not, not you guys, but Christians, when they're trying to figure out what Romans 1.18 says, that we become people who um, try to listen charitably to people and have better conversations. And uh, yeah, I, I think that's all I want to say about this. But I do think it's really important. I, I think it's noteworthy that in this video about impugning motives and attributing uh, other than stated motives, that we have this statement that ministries um, are only being, you know, united or, or, or uh, toning down the heresy scares on secondary doctrinal issues because they want followers and money. Um, that seems to go against the stated goal or what seems to be the goal, whether it was stated or not, of the whole video to begin with. And I hope that those who made the video will take it seriously. But guys, I like you both. I want to see you become Christians again. Not saying that in a condescending way. And at, with that, I'll see you next time on Trinity Radio. <laughs>